brought to you by Wild Foods Co. Let's take a second to talk about Wild Foods. Wild Foods is a food company that puts quality, sustainability, and health first in all of their products. They have everything from coffee to fish oil, and every single product is painstakingly sourced from small farms around the globe. They take their mission seriously to fix the broken food system and believe real food is medicine. They've partnered with us to give you guys an exclusive discount, so use the code MAGIC for 12% off your order. There is so much research out there on the benefits of mushrooms, and I add their mushrooms to my coffee every morning, along with their cacao butter and their MCT oil. And then I also end my day with their Cocoa Tropic, which is a proprietary blend of mushrooms, turmeric, and cacao powder and it's reishi mushrooms so that's great for anti-anxiety and just for ending your day on a relaxing note and i also use their fish oil every day and their himalayan sea salt so i mean they've really got it all you guys they also just released a bar that's keto friendly it tastes amazing and it comes in at only two grams per bar so this means you know none of the sugar alcohols and it's all the protein and fat that you need to fuel your low carb lifestyle with natural ingredients like almond butter and collagen this bar is an amazing addition to your routine while still adhering to the primary values of wild foods wild foods is real food with real ingredients and our listeners get 12% off their entire order that's right we're offering our listeners 12% off of the entire order so sign up at wildfoods.co slash discount slash magic hour again go to wildfoods.co slash discount slash magic hour to get your discount Hello, welcome boys and babes to the Magic Hour podcast, a place where we navigate through life's peaks and valleys with all the vulnerability and shamelessness we can muster. With the help of world-class guests from all walks of life, we uncover new truths and valuable tools for manifesting our highest potential. I'm your host, Mercedes Terrell, along with my partner in shine, Jade Bryce. Hello, friends. I know we usually jump straight into the interview with our guests, but today I wanted to first quickly share with y'all a really beautiful example that one of you magic members sent in for us recently by speaking beauty through a heartfelt review. So this review is from Nikki P1986. Mercedes and Jade are two of the most intelligent, spiritual, and authentically wise women that I have ever had the honor of listening to. With every podcast, there is realness, humor, and lessons learned and shared. I am beyond happy for you both. Big things in store for you. Wanted you to know I am forever thankful for your messages for the betterment of the world. Hmm. That's yeah. so sweet. Nikki, super thank sweet. You. Yeah. Thanks, she she hit me up uh, in the comments on Instagram the other day too and said something similar. So she is just being so supportive. I love that girl. Thank you so much, Nikki. Yeah, super sweet. Um, making a spill scene in her. So thank you so mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Um, and setting a really good example, by the way, uh, because after I read reviews like hers, I do often try to turn that around, you know, like pay it forward and Mm -hmm. think about people in my life who are making some sort of impression, um, whether it just be because of their presence in my life or because of the work they're doing. And I try to reach out and 
say something to them. Yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. And actually today we are speaking with someone who fits the role of one of those people who you mentioned because her work is constantly yes. asking us to grow. Yes, definitely. Um, and I know Jade, both you and I are constantly sending her posts back and forth because she uses social media so deliberately and wonderfully to bring her work to light. So I'm thrilled to be talking to her today. So without further ado, let me introduce a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and relationship therapist working passionately in Minnesota as part of an integrative medical practice where she treats various sexual health concerns, both from the psychological and medical standpoint. She believes in a holistic approach, reaching for a more balanced way of healing for herself and her clients. At her clinic, she applies different methods and techniques, including the Gottman Method for Couples Therapy and Behavioral Mindfulness, Polyvagal, and Sensate Focus Therapies across her other areas of interest and expertise, including low libido, sexual and pelvic pain, problems achieving orgasm, erectile dysfunction, and premature ejaculation compulsive and out-of-control sexual behaviors, transgender and gender non-conforming health, and LGBTQIA-related concerns. A wealth of knowledge on all things related to relationship and sexual well-being. She's also a woman standing strongly in her own story of striving for mental wellness, and we are ecstatic to have her on the show today. So with that, please welcome Dr. Lauren Vogel. Mercy to the Magic Hour. <laughs> Thank you Hi. so much for having me. Hi. Thank you for being here. You have, as I listed there, a fascinating uh, list of issues that your work asks you to look at daily. So I'm wondering what it was that brought you to this work in the first place and how you found your place as a sex and relationship therapist. It's such a common question that I get, and mm -hmm. I wish I had some really exciting answer for it. Um, but my journey started in, um, actually, when I was a teenager, I just sort of knew that I wanted to go into psychology and I wanted to help people. Um, and I think that at that age, uh, you know, I think I was around 16, where, um, you know, you're kind of exploring dating and sexuality and you're sort of coming into your own. Mm -hmm. um, and I just found that really interesting. And so that I, I know that I was um, reading books about, you know, our bodies and changes and things like this. And I think it was that sort of age that I got the seed planted that it would be really fun to talk to people about this in more depth than have that be uh, even a career. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of dabbled with that idea for a while. It wasn't until I came to Minnesota to train at the University of Minnesota, um, where I did a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in human sexuality. And that sort of solidified that this is what I wanted to do. So um, I've been doing that ever since. I've been here for um, about eight years now, and I am doing uh, sex and relationship therapy um, exclusively. So it's mm. been it's been really wonderful. Very cool. I know that I would have had a big head start had I been thinking about this type of thing when I was in high school or, you know, as young as you started thinking about it. So that's interesting to me in itself. You said, you know, you wish you had an interesting story behind it, but just someone that young thinking in that direction and wanting to also bring that to the world somehow and help others with it, I think is really interesting. Did your parents have anything to do with it? <laughs> I feel like I did you not know. have this type of concentration of focus at this age you're talking about. My parents have been super supportive and it started with, I was actually just cleaning out the basement and found 
like the first sex books that we uh-huh. had as kids. Oh, wow. Um, it's a really, really old book and it's, it's really not good. <laughs> but it was called, um, oh, what one of them was like, what's happening to my body? And the mm, other wow. one was, where, where did I come from? And wow. so those topics were um, like those were kids' picture books that we had mm-hmm. in the house, and my mom was really open about talking about that stuff with us. And so, um, mm. it we just grew up kind of knowing that if we had questions, that we could talk about it, and it wasn't a taboo subject. So, mm-hmm. I definitely think my parents helped, and they are very proud, and they love to tell people that I'm a sex therapist. That's yeah. so cool. Oh that God. really is. That's massively different from my upbringing. It was like shame. You my know, mom doesn't like... even want people to know I have a podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they might listen yeah. and hear the word sex. It would be <laughs> the end of you know yeah. her social outings or something. It uh, seems like Chloe, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. experience is certainly more in line with what I hear uh, most yeah. often from my clients. Yeah is that it was more of a shaming or mm-hmm. uh, experience or it wasn't talked about. So I know yeah. that mine was a more unique experience compared to mm-hmm. the stories that I hear. Yeah. yeah. I, what, hope we, um, I hope we're changing that little by little, even by having yes, this conversation today. I hope you. so And too. as a parent myself, yes. Um, what is the Gottman method and how is it used in your couples therapy? So the Gottman method is based on uh, Dr. J- John Gottman and Dr. Julie Schwartz Gottman's, um, basically their life work. Um, they're a couple and um, they started um, research together many, many years ago. And I can't remember if uh, John had started it first, um, but they've been working and um, doing both couples therapy and research and um, really studying couples interactions for over 45 years. And from their um, from their studies and from their research, they, they sort of developed a method of um, treating common couples issues and breaking it down into um, a language that's really easy, I think, for people to understand. And um, what I really like about it is it's got a pretty structured approach to, okay, here's the things that it looks like we have to work on. Here's the ways that we work on it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a really nice way to go about doing um, couples therapy. And it's also yeah. one of the only evidence-based therapies that we have mm-hmm. for couples therapy. There's a few, certainly there's a whole bunch of different approaches, but this one is, um, you know, one of the evidence-based practices yeah. that it, that are out there. This is um, me and my boyfriend are reading this book, Eight Dates. Yes, um, yes. We're on the fourth date, which is the funnest one because it's sex. <laughs> but, <laughs> Love it. But it's, it's um, gosh, I can't imagine if every couple really did these eight dates in their beginning of their relationship, how um, different every, like the foundations would be. Um, the, the eye contact that you are supposed to make um, when you do the vows on each day and everything um, that you learn about each other with all of the questions you have to ask, it's amazing. So, um, and I didn't realize until we rehearsed this um, outline with you, I didn't, with, uh, for you, I didn't realize that you were associated with Gottman. So it was so cool to already be in the practice a little bit. That's their um, most recent book that they came out with. Um, And it kind of guides you through eight different date structures and questions to ask each other and kind of goes over a little bit of their research and their methods. 
Um, and so that's a really nice book. And, and that's the newest one that they've come out with. The one that I tend to use the most with couples is um, the one called um, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And that one's by mm. John Gottman. Um, it has marriage in the title. I really think that it applies to um, all, you know, relationship structures. I think there's some things that you can tease out of that for, you know, any long-term relationships. So that's also mm-hmm. a really good one and highly, highly recommended reading. Yeah. Well, we're big book readers over here on this podcast. Yeah. So we will add that all on the show notes, of course. Fabulous. Could you maybe go into, um, I know it talks about in this book, um, what they say are perpetual issues. Yes. Yeah. So the idea of perpetual issues um, comes out of the research, uh, the statistic that tends to go with that is that 69% of the things that a couple will argue about or have conflict about is going to be perpetual versus solvable. And so what that means is that it's not really something that has a clear-cut solution. So an example might be one person is more introverted, the other person is more extroverted, and that creates certain challenges in their relationship dynamic in terms of maybe how they spend their time or how they'd like to spend their time. One person would like to spend more time in, the other person maybe wants to go out more. That's a perpetual issue because it's rooted in more of a character structure and and how that's different between two people. Mm-hmm. So it's not like what color should we paint this room, we figure it out eventually, and then we move on. Mm-hmm. It's something that you're constantly going to have to manage and figure out over the course of the relationship. Mm-hmm. So perpetual issues, the idea is to identify first that, you know, okay, this is one of our perpetual issues. And then to um, figure out what are the ways that we can best manage this. And mm-hmm. so we use the word manage versus resolve, because yeah. in many cases, it's not something that's just going to go away. Mm-hmm. Yes, hence perpetual. Yeah, that's, yeah so that's right. When right. would you say is it time to end a relationship if um, if it seems like maybe you can't solve the perpetual issues, or when is it a big enough issue that you think maybe the relationship should just come to an end? Yeah, the perpetual issue is something you just don't want to live with mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. I guess. Well, you just said it. It's when you find out that the perpetual issue is around something that you have as a Mm non-negotiable. So if it's something that you decide I cannot live with this, or this violates a core um, value of mine, or it's something that goes against, you know, what I'm trying to build my life around, then that might be a sign that it's time Mm -hmm. to end a relationship because at that point you're at a pretty strong gridlock. Mm. What's a really good tool to sort out what are perpetual issues and what are solvable issues? It's a great question. And that's why I like the seven principles book, because it really Mm. goes into detail about that stuff. But um, in the therapy room, when I'm with, um, when I'm with couples, what we often do is um, we'll break things down into, um, you know, kind of looking at what are the common themes in the uh, conflicts that they're having. And oftentimes couples come into therapy over a perpetual issue. Mm. It's not usually a solvable issue. Mm-hmm. So um, often it's not coming in because, you know, we don't know what school to send the kids to. So we're fighting about that. I mean, maybe that happens sometimes, but more often than not, it's about perpetual issues. They tend to um, 
kind of cluster around things that are more stable over time. So, um, and, and the things that they cluster around are the significant differences between two people. Hmm. So hmm. if there's really stark differences between how you spend money and one person spends very differently than the other, that's likely to be a perpetual issue mm-hmm. in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Or um, if uh, sexuality is certainly one that I see a lot where there's uh, des- desire discrepancies, people who, mm. you know, each partner wants something a little bit different and it's hard to figure out how to navigate that. That's probably one of the most common issues that I see. Um, and the tricky part of it is, you know, that, there's not likely to be one solution or one way to manage it that's going to perfectly satisfy each person. And Mm -hmm. that's where it gets really challenging. And so um, couples often have to, um, you know, kind of navigate what they're willing to Mm -hmm. compromise on and for what and how often and kind of revisiting some of these things along the way. Sometimes what we negotiate at one moment in time is going to change and we need to renegotiate it at another time. Hmm. Probably areas too, where we're trying to, we find ourselves trying to change them the most. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yep. Is that the, I mean, that's, I've heard you say before, that's the place you kind of draw the line or have to draw the line when you find yourself trying over and over to change somebody regarding Mm -hmm. a perpetual issue. Because it's, it's right. not fair at that point. It's part of their makeup. Yeah. Right. Change that. Right. Mm-hmm. And often I think that we get stuck because we look to the other person mm-hmm. so much and look at where they're different from us and mm-hmm. try to make that the focus of the problem is that you're over there, I'm over here, and that's the problem. And you need to come to my side here. And yeah we have so much more leverage when we figure out what our lines are and try to live within those. So um, one of the exercises that we use, and I, um, I think you can find this pretty easily online, is compromise ovals. And mm. basically you just draw two ovals, one inside the other. And the smaller oval is the stuff that you can be flexible, uh, that you're not flexible about, okay. that is mm. not negotiable. Mm-hmm. And then the bigger circle is going to be the list of ways that you can be flexible and that you can negotiate. And you're going to create one of these compromise ovals per issue. So it's not like all the issues go into one one sort of oval. But for each thing, you're kind of basically drawing the line between here's what I can compromise and here's where my bottom line is. Hmm. And the clearer you are about what that is for you, the better you're able to come to the table with some ideas for flexibility. And usually the things that we're flexible about are going to be a lot uh, more in number than the things that we're inflexible about. We're inflexible about things that would be basically a boundary for us. Yeah. Sounds like a really amazing uh, practice and simple enough that anyone can get the idea how that works. Um, I was thinking too, that if I looked back on my, you know, timeline of relationships that I would definitely see that although something that might have been a perpetual issue if I made that graph for instance I don't know 10 years ago it has taken 10 years for me to decide to reconsider it on my own you know and however that happened along my journey to change whatever that 
perpetual issue might have been back then where, you know, if I met the same person that I was with back then, we would maybe have a very different relationship, I would assume. Um, So that's interesting because I think we hold on in relationship, you know, we want to like, for some reason, we want to force the person we're with to become to fit, you know, to make this thing fit, make this thing work. Uh, maybe for me, at least, it's like an avoidance of wanting to do the work all over again of the finding and the, you know, all the things that are that go with uh, courting. And so we find these perpetual issues, or I've noticed. I'm speaking for myself here. Maybe I'm projecting on everybody else, but we come up with these per- perpetual issues in our partners and we see them, we know they're there. We know we should probably leave, but we still hang in there and maybe it'll change. Maybe if he reads enough books or enough, you know, does this work or he sees this movie that's going to change his mind somehow. Why do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> we are just such hopeful creatures. Um, it's funny, as you were speaking, it reminds me, I was, um, I've been to some trainings with the Gottmans and, um, at one of them, I remember John was saying that basically we partner with someone, um, and we find them interesting because they're different from us. Like Mm. they are, you know, they have different qualities, different interests. There's intrigue and excitement about finding somebody who's a bit different. And then we partner with them and then spend the rest of our lives trying to make them just like us. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there is a interesting piece of that though, where we partner with someone who is going to reflect what we need to kind of look at deeper and get more balanced on. So there's that, but man, it's a little painful. It's a little, it's a tough, tough job relationships. It yeah. is really it's interesting who we call into our lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that the challenge is really, you know, how do you honor two people who are different and how do you find that balance mm-hmm. over time? Mm-hmm. And it's a constant negotiation and compromise every single day over yeah. things that are really small and then things that are really significant. Right. Um, and those differences come up constantly. And so learning how to talk about your differences and how to negotiate and compromise the differences is probably one of the uh, most important relationship yeah. skills that you could ever develop. Jade made a beautiful example there where her and her man are using this book that's um, already part of the method that you teach a lot about. Um, mm-hmm which is great because both of them have said yes to going in and doing some of that work just by saying, I'm going to read this book and then we're going to try to apply it, you know, to our relationship. Why is there so much pushback when it comes to getting into couples therapy? Do you think? I will say that this is going to sound um, gendered because it is gendered. And, And this comes from the experiences that I have both with Uh, the clients I see in my office and also the folks I have connected to online through Mm -hmm. social media, Mm -hmm. there seems to be a strong resistance to couples therapy from a lot of men. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability makes them uncomfortable, you think? I think it's about how we've socialized men in our Mm -hmm. culture. Um, You know, men are taught some of these, you know, sort of masculine ways of going about things that you shouldn't have to ask for help. You shouldn't have Mm. to, you know, you shouldn't have to read a book to know, you know, how to be in a Mm. relationship that talking about your feelings and emotions, there's a lot of ways. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, there's a lot of ways that we have 
socialized men into sort of believing that coming into therapy is a sign of either weakness or you don't know what you're doing. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a vulnerability, like you said. And so there's a lot of that pushback Mm -hmm. from men who have been taught to believe those things. And it bleeds into everything. It bleeds into the bedroom. It bleeds into all of the love languages because there's something about men who uh, a lot of times I feel like men feel like they can't ask you what you like in the room because they just, they should already know. Um, And then we're left, you know, feeling our needs are unmet. So um, right. It is, it is that we, I guess, have pushed them into this box, huh? Our culture. It's how we, uh, yeah, it's how we teach young boys who then become, you know, young men and, and once mm-hmm. they get into relationships. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, 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 there's no sense in that. I mean, when you really pull it apart, like mm-hmm. how would you know how to do something well right. if you've never been taught, if you didn't study it, if it wasn't modeled to you? Right. I think that that extends to all people. And, and this is where it kind of connects to everyone is that most of us never learned a lot of these things. We never yeah. took classes in it. Most people haven't read books about relationships and most people um, you know, didn't have models like, you know, what's described in some of these books that are based mm-hmm. on the research. So like, how would you expect to know that? Yeah, agreed. And the thing about going in and doing this work and literally maybe completely, you know, we can call it remodeling a relationship by doing this work. You know, if you, if the relationship is a house, which I think is part of the Gottman uh, theory they yes. the, the house what is it called the um, the sound relationship yes, house. sound relationship house but if yes. you think of it as a house and you're going in and you're doing some serious reconstruction of this this building um it can essentially come out looking like an entirely new beautiful relationship so maybe that's a way to frame it for you know men and women um that couples therapy or going to a professional is similar to the way that you would have something you need in your house worked on so that it can be new. Like a car. When a car has trouble, you don't just park it in your garage (laughs) and hope it gets better. You take it to a mechanic, you know, like you get an oil change, you do the things that a car needs. Um, I often will talk about relationships as a business. Mm. And I know that's not the you know, the fairy tale version that we like to think about for relationships. But there is, I think, a huge benefit to applying some of this thinking to it because, you know, there's no business that would do well if you put all of your energy into the startup and, you know, got it going, you know, had your launch day and then sat back and just said, okay, it should just Mm. sort of run from here. And, it should just be this like passive process. Mm -hmm. And so um, we find that, you know, a lot of people sort of approach relationships in that way. They spend a lot of energy in the courting phase in planning a a wedding if they end up getting married and, you know, putting all of this stuff into that starting up phase. And then once it's like, we live together or we've started a family and then it's sort of this autopilot that we go into. The business will run itself. Yeah. Yeah. The business will run itself. And, if you know you know from uh, you know different jobs that you've had that you constantly have meetings we have department meetings or business mm-hmm. meetings where you kind of look at all of the different hey, areas hey. and exactly <laughs> how how are things going what needs attention what do we need to restructure mm-hmm. so that we can make sure that we're still you know the business is doing well and so 
Um, and that's a bit part of the Gottman method. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is so helpful uh, that I got from their research and their ideas is um, what they call the state of the union meeting. Mm. And this is um, basically a, a weekly check-in for couples that helps them kind of stay on track with, you know, what's going well, what do we have to pay attention to, what do we need to know coming up for the next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the couples that I work with who implement this and create a ritual around this tend to see tremendous gains in yeah. their connection with each other and reduction in their overall uh, fighting and conflict because yeah. they're actually intentionally taking time to talk about things. Yeah. The four steps in the Gottman um, method of conflict. Um, we, um, I've only been in this relationship for six months, so we've really only had like three big conflicts, but we did the four steps mm-hmm. and it, I've never, I used to do plant medicine ceremonies regularly and I would feel the rewiring of my brain on the medicine. And it was so crazy that doing these four steps and in, in conflict and, and actually, um, like changing patterns, it, it had the same effect on me. Mm-hmm. So. It's it's amazing. And I think for a lot of people, they may not realize what is possible in their relationships mm-hmm. um, because we just, again, we kind of do this autopilot thing where, you know, the partner's just there um, mm-hmm. and maybe we hang out sometimes and maybe we get into arguments sometimes, but the potential for relationships is so powerful and so yeah. healing and so amazing. Um, but we do have to put energy into it yeah. too. And to you really learn so much about yourself that. too each time. Absolutely. It's where so much personal growth comes from. Mm-hmm. I have really high hopes for the direction we're headed. And I don't know if it's because you know, Jane and I have this podcast, so we live in this realm maybe more often than the rest of the world. So maybe that's how I feel, you know, I'm just surrounded by these people talking about it, but it does feel like there are a lot more people and especially men, because women are always been a little more open to this, um, opening to the idea of creating more intimacy mm-hmm. just with the world around them, especially in their relationships, yeah. you know, people, Ro- roles are changing coming. and, um, you know, I think it was, um, I'm I'm at the very tail end of the millennials, although I don't really love uh, identifying as that sometimes, but it's the honest truth. Um, and so it was my parents' generation and our parents' generation that kind of started, you know, going to therapy yeah. and being open to that because I know my grandparents' generation, it was still yeah. so taboo. They yeah. would never consider that. And um, you know, my grandparents all thought that going to a therapist meant something was seriously wrong with you. Um, and or you're my at parents, the end of your relationship. Right, right. That it was just this horrible sign to, you know, go see a therapist. And then, you know, my parents went to therapy. I grew up going to therapy at different points in my life. And so I think the newer generations as we're, you know, raising them are more open to it. So I am hopeful mm-hmm. alongside you. Yeah. Do you, uh, my, uh, just on that, my father and my stepfather both like would never and have never gotten a massage even like Mm -hmm. having someone touch them is even too much. Oh my goodness. You know what I mean? That's just Mm -hmm. such a generationally different mindset, but it's my favorite Mm -hmm. form of therapy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) literally. Um, But I was going to go into how you just, you just mentioned that you had gone to therapy when you were, um, you know, during your upbringing. And I was wondering if your own struggles with, uh, I think you've said before is anxiety 
was mm-hmm. your struggle. Um, did that play a huge part in helping you with your own clients? And was it ever taboo when you were coming into the um, therapy and psychology industry? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, I I feel like I was probably born anxious from from the get go. Mm. Um, it wasn't diagnosed by a clinician until I was a teenager, but there were certainly signs of it in my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we would go to family therapy. I had individual therapy, um, and I would sort of pop in and out depending on you know different seasons of my life, um, which I continue to this day, sort of as needed. Um, but certainly when I was entering, uh, graduate school and probably throughout that training and up until recently, um, you know, a lot of therapy programs teach the students that they should keep everything about their personal life and their own personal struggles completely private and behind closed doors. And so there very much was this sort of implicit stigma about sharing that you would have any mental health struggles Mm -hmm. of your own or talking about anything to do with yourself. And, you know, I think there's an important piece to that, which is that it's really important for a therapist not to center themselves in the therapy Mm -hmm. room. So it's always about the client mm-hmm. and the person who is there for therapy, but our ability to relate to our clients as therapists comes from also being human mm-hmm. and not just yeah. reading things in books, but also experiencing them in life. And I think that that's a really powerful way to validate someone else's experience and to say, yeah, I've, you know, I've also been there or I know what that's like. And I think it's with sort of the the new generation of therapists, a lot of the younger therapists who are on social media and who are creating more of mm-hmm. a public um, personality and mm-hmm. platform mm-hmm. are uh, kind of paving the way for, you know, destigmatizing the yeah. fact that we're also human and we have some of our own struggles. And I know a lot of my clients and, and the people that I uh, talk to on social media have shared that that when we do that, it actually is quite meaningful. Absolutely. I think destigmatizing is exactly what it's doing. And that's what I feel like is needed. I feel like that's so much of the press back, you know, the pushback um, is because it feels like, we're just supposed to be perfect all the time somehow. And it's just not reality. Um, I want to kind of change gears slightly. Uh, I'd love for you to break down what sensate focus therapy and polyvagal therapy are, and then maybe we can get into some of the um, ways that those ideas can be applied to sexual wellness. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll start with the sensate. So sensate focus is a type of therapy uh, that I use with my clients. Um, and um, I learned it from uh, Constance uh, Avery Clark and Linda Weiner, who studied with um, Masters and Johnson. And for those who aren't familiar, those are, they made a, a show about them called Masters of Sex. They were researchers in sexuality in the US in the 50s and 60s and sort mm. of you know, started some groundbreaking um, study and research in the field of human sexuality. And so this type of therapy goes back, you know, many years. I mean, it's decades at this point. Um, but uh, they were kind of at the, the, the 
groundbreaking of um, integrating mindfulness into sexual uh, mm. function and experience. And so basically, sensate focus is a mindfulness practice. And for the folks who are experiencing um, some sexual difficulties that also have a psychological component um, or a body component where it's not just um, purely medical, Mm. Sensate focus tends to be really helpful. Basically, what it is is a series of exercises that I will walk folks through. And it's something that they do at home. It takes five to 10 minutes a session. It's basically just mindful touching Mm. and focusing Mm. more exclusively on tactile sensations like temperature and pressure and texture and trying to make that the focal point rather than trying to work toward a goal, like to make something happen. Mm. And that tends to alleviate a lot of pressure and anxiety and getting kind of stuck in our heads. And so Mm. it's a tremendously effective treatment approach for sex therapy. Um, And I use it routinely. And I think it's it's just one of the greatest things there is. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know about it. And a lot of people are not practicing it. And so I hope that, you know, people kind of pick it up more and more over Revive time. Revive it again. Yeah. So, so helpful. Yeah. I had never heard of it. It makes yeah. me think of so, something that seems to keep coming up on the show recently is that we're all hyper-focused. And I say all, meaning this culture we live in, hyper-focused on um, penis and vagina sex and the orgasm mm-hmm. therein. And mm-hmm. that idea that you don't, you're allowed to not have to make that the focus of an intimate, you know, uh, mm-hmm. interaction. It's okay to do that. Like you mm-hmm. don't have to achieve orgasm or you don't have to have penis and vagina sex and you can still have pleasure. Like that is actually possible. So yeah. I'm just it's, saying it out loud just so that it's said out loud. <laughs> so, so important. It's probably one of the most important messages that I talk to folks about. Um, it's breaking beyond like a binary way of looking at sex as either it didn't happen at all, or it happened in this one very particular way. Mm -hmm. And even just the word sex is often used interchangeably for like intercourse. Right. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'll even just find myself kind of steering away from that word. And Mm. I kind of go more towards intimacy, Mm -hmm. um, Mm. because I, I think it kind of adds more of a broader broader scope. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, a lot of people will struggle with the idea that, you know, if it wasn't intercourse, it didn't count. Mm. And that's really a, a limited way of experiencing sexuality in the world. That's so interesting. Yeah. Reminds mm-hmm. me of, you know, high school when girls would be like, I'm a virgin. I've had anal sex with seven guys. But <laughs> I am a virgin. You know, like just the idea that we get, I mean, we get this idea implanted in our head mm-hmm. from so, there's a whole lot of other things going on in that situation that, you know, we need to untangle, but that's for a different show, maybe a different day. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, just the idea that we are so hyper-focused on that penis and vi- vagina sex being the thing that makes it suddenly we've done the deed, you know, we've, yeah, had an intimate uh, relationship there. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes into a whole history about virginity yeah. and women, yeah. and that is a show in and of itself. I'm sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Do you? I mean, mm-hmm. that interests me a lot. Do you have any? I don't know tidbits or something that you just feel like is important to be said about where that all started from and why we think that way. 
um, there, there seems to be, it's a tricky subject because it seems to go into some of, um, religious messages that a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, are raised with, right. um, and ideas about, you know, saving yourself for marriage. Maybe like and the hymen breaking. What is that this, means. Yeah. Yeah. The hymen breaking. And it's also about, um, I mean, at, at its root, it's about, um, virginity tends to focus a lot more on women than men mm-hmm. yeah. and it's measured a lot in women versus men. So this idea of, you know, the hymen and whether you're a virgin, we tend to hyper-focus on female virginity right. and we kind of, you know, give boys and young men a pass kind of thinking boys will yeah. be boys. So at its root, it's it's a feminist issue, and it's about the control of women's bodies, and mm-hmm. it's it's a whole kind of political um, right. issue. Yeah, yeah, it gets into that realm. It does. So, and polyvagal. Uh, polyvagal. Yeah. yeah, that's um, that's something that from the um, from the world of social media, which I have been so grateful for. Um, I've recently just learned about polyvagal theory. And so I still say that I'm, you know, I'm a student because I'm still reading it and learning it. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially what it is, is it's a theory that was um, developed by Dr. Stephen Porges in the 1990s. And it refers to our vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve, sort of the back of the neck. And it mediates uh, or controls our fight or flight system and our ability Mm. to either go into survival mode or register that we are calm and safe. Hmm. And so it, it's, as I read more about it, it seems to, uh, first of all, make a lot of sense, but also explain a lot of our experiences with um, mental health stuff like uh, anxiety and depression. And it also translates to our sexual experiences as well. So if uh, you're somebody who struggles maybe with a uh, lack of interest in sex or um, it's difficult to get aroused for sex, mm-hmm. it's possible that some of that could be related to the body still not feeling sort of calm safe. or safe or at mm-hmm. rest. And so it's biologically not possible to be yeah. sort of in that survival mode and also get aroused at the same time. Makes so that much makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, anytime. Makes a lot of sense stressed, right? Stress yeah. is triggering yeah. all that, that, um, fight or flight feeling. Nobody wants to be turned on in that situation. I mean, you're not, yeah. nobody can be, I suppose, be turned on. Well, it's interesting because some people will say, well, stress actually makes me want to go have sex because it's a stress <laughs> oh, reliever. So hmm. I like to differentiate between stress, the like mental cognitive yeah. experience the of stress flight. Mm-hmm. And the fight or flight sort of stress response, and those um, are different. Mm, so yeah. you could be mentally stressed and then be highly motivated to seek out sex because it'll yeah. help maybe clear your mind. Um, whereas if you're in a physical state of stress, yeah. you might want to, but you may not be able to mm-hmm. in that moment get aroused yeah. or or get into mm-hmm. it. I wonder if there's a difference there if you're, you know, mentally stressed out. Are you seeking sex or masturbation or something very simple and easy and quick, or are you do you seek intimacy in that state of mind, or is that a blocker as well? You know that type of stress is that kind of block from the intimacy that we're talking about. Hopefully, being able to create more of in the world. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because I think you know when people are stressed. 
I think they tend to go more towards sex for the orgasm and the like stress relief component mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. But there's also stress relief from um, physical affection and the release of oxytocin, which is yeah. our bonding hormone. So I think it could potentially be either. Mm. Um, certainly masturbation is going to be, um, you know, one that would be helpful more for stress than for intimacy because you're not going to get the intimacy from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think potentially you could get both out of, um, you know, partnered sex, which would be the yeah. the affection and the touch as well as the um, stress relief, from, yeah. you know, orgasm and pleasure. And you hear the words like sexually, sexually frustrated, like some people may even blame their stress on not having that release. Um, But I was in a relationship for years where I lived in fight or flight mode and I thought my sex drive was gone. I thought, Mm -hmm. well, I've hit 30, I guess, I guess (laughs) I'm done done with the drive. And then, um, you know, after, after that relationship, I went through a um, seven month, eight month celibacy and um, really worked through all of those triggers that I uh, had to face in that relationship. And, um, and then it came like a flood. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and especially, you know, with a new relationship, mm -hmm. there's an energy that comes from that. And so certainly that can revive libido pretty well for a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah. Could you define self and co-regulation and maybe give us some ideas of how we can create and hold a safe space for ourselves and for each other? Sure. So self-regulation is basically um, kind of understanding when you're in that fight or flight or freeze is another uh, variation of that. Mm -hmm. So when you're feeling like, you know, you're not in that balanced place, um, going back to polyvagal theory, we call it the ventral vagal state, which is another word for safe and social and like calm and rest. Um, So if you feel like you are um, not in that place, self-regulation is basically recognizing that you're in that place of being dysregulated and mm-hmm. then um, kind of figuring out what it is that you need to, the, uh, the polyvagal theory kind of operates with a ladder as one of its visuals. So at the top of the ladder is that ventral state, which is the calm state. And then the bottom is the dorsal vagal, which is more of the uh, frozen state or the mm-hmm. uh, shutdown state. So basically self, uh, self-regulating self is kind of recognizing what you need and learning what you need to move up that ladder back to your safe and social space. And so that could be you know, spending time with people who feel safe and comforting to you. It could be through physical movement. It could be through... Um, meditation or yoga. And it's just, you know, playing around with some things until you kind of figure out how your nervous system works. So that's Mm self-regulation. Co-regulation is basically uh, something that we can use. It's what therapists use a lot. It's what parents use a lot. And partners can do this too, which is basically trying to maintain that ventral calm space, even Mm. when the things that are going on around you might be Um, tumultuous, or if the people around you might be dysregulated, what we can do is we can feed off of each other's nervous systems. And so if I am taking care of myself to stay balanced and to stay regulated, I'm much more likely to then be able to stay uh, more regulated when I'm with somebody else. And that sort of invites them to regulate as well. And so uh, we can sometimes, you know, help 
bring others around us up the ladder, we can also sometimes mm-hmm. bring people down the ladder. So yeah. that's co-regulation. I'm working on that as a, as a parent for my children. Well, yeah. I tell you, uh, when I'm trying to navigate my monthly hormonal cycle, sometimes that is mm-hmm. not right? possible. Yeah. It's not very easy <laughs> right. anyway. Is there a right. reason why some of us do the fight, some of us do the flight, and some of us do the freeze? Or is that just our nervous system is different for each of us and it's how we respond? As, yeah, as far as I know, I think it's just sort of uh, different wiring for different people. Certainly also um, lived experiences and the yeah. things that we've been through could contribute mm-hmm. to that as well. So, um, you know, I having anxiety, have a pretty overactive startle response that I've only started to recognize over the past couple of years, but mm-hmm. uh, my startle response is pretty activated. And yeah. so the the slightest movement or noise, I get, you know, this really quick jump. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me personally, that's not from a, a trauma experience. That's from being a more anxious person. For mm-hmm. some people that might be from uh, experiencing a traumatic event mm-hmm. earlier in their life. So mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of our wiring and also the things that have happened to us. Yeah. And you said um, before something about the five to one ratio, would that be part of co-regulation? The five to one ratio is the, um, it's from the Gottmans okay. and um, I don't know, would it fit into co-regulation? Maybe um, the five to one ratio is basically, well, actually it could, Um five positive things that you're offering to the interaction for every one negative. And that ratio is specifically during conflict. Mm. So that certainly could actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that's a great question is um, (laughs) definitely a way to um, offer co-regulation. An example that I use that I've talked about before um, is that when uh, I'm in conflict with my husband, he will offer out his hand and put his hand mm, on mine. Yes. And um, that's so hard to a do. way to, yeah. it's very hard to do. So hard to do. Um, very hard. So powerful <laughs> though. He's yeah. very good at it. And yeah. so even mm. if we're like right in the middle of it, he'll put his hand on mine. And it's just sort of this peace what offering a of like, husband. <laughs> it's, I'm very lucky. Mm. Um He'll, he'll put his hand out in that sort of a peace offering that, you know what, this is a tough moment, but mm. we're going to get through this. And it certainly does help to diffuse some of the dysregulation or the tension. And so, um, yeah, I do think that, you know, offering kindness or, you know, reaching out a hand or something that diffuses some of the, um, the, you know, conflict or the interaction can help with co-regulation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So that five, one ratio though, that is, uh, something I hadn't heard of before. So this is your offering. Fi- it's not necessarily in the moment, right? This is just like an ongoing kind of ratio you're trying to keep in the relationship. Am I understanding that? No, thing? actually. Oh, okay. So a lot of it, well, you're, you're, uh, that's a good guess because a lot of people actually think that's what it means. Um, they often refer to the five to one and they think that that means sort of in general, the mm-hmm. general number is, um, it's kind of surprising to a lot of people. It's 20 to one. Yeah. So Wow, okay. It's a lot, but I'll break that down so it doesn't feel so overwhelming. 20 to 1 means that you want to offer uh, 20 positive um, interactions or deposits toward mm-hmm. your partner for every one negative that mm-hmm. is going to occur. And so I know that sounds kind of startling for a lot of people, but it really is in small moments throughout the day. So mm-hmm. when I text my husband and say, 
you know, I hope you have a good day at work. That's a deposit. That's one. Mm -hmm. You know, when you give a kiss goodbye, that's two. When you send a text and say, how's your day going? That's three. Like it's all these little things combined Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. add up. So it doesn't have to be something, you know, grand and over the top to keep that number going. Yeah. And so basically it's 20 to one throughout the day, five to one is actually in the conflict moment. And that can be through, you know, uh, like what my husband does, which is put his hand out. Mm -hmm. It could be through breaking the tension with some humor. Although I would say Mm. use that cautiously depending on your dynamic. Maybe just like calmly saying you're safe with me. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Or which aren't aren't easy in the moment. No, or saying something like, you know what, you might have a point. Let me think on mm. that. You know, letting somebody know that, you know, what you're saying Validate is them. valid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all of those things are important, even mm-hmm. when we're in the midst of conflict. And if you find that you're not able to do that, yeah. it's usually because you're dysregulated. And so yeah, that's a great, true. that's mm-hmm. a great sign that you should take a break you and just say, hey, I, I need a break. Yeah. Let's come back to this in a little mm-hmm. bit so that I can offer those five to right. one and yeah. make, make use of this interaction. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I'm so glad I had you clarify. Cause my husband yes. been like, we'd be living in five to one ratio. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. Um, would have been bad. Men can often feel emasculated just by a woman bringing up anything around sex life within the relationship. How can we talk more openly and honestly about sex with our partners? One of the first things I recommend is to not, uh, well, when it comes to a general conversation about your sex life or the things you like or you want to try, when it's a general sort of let's talk about this, I recommend not doing it when you're in the moment. So have clothes on, be on the couch or be, you know, at the table or something like this where maybe it doesn't feel as vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And um, Actually, speaking of the Gottmans, they have um, an app called Gottman Card Decks. No way. And it's free. And so if you look up Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N in the app store, you'll find it. That's so exciting. It is really cool. And so they used to be physical decks of cards, which is where the name comes from. And in there, there are two decks of cards. One is sex questions to ask a man sex mm. questions to ask a woman Love it. and a ton <laughs> like almost a hundred of each open-ended questions to ask your partner about sex that is so cool so huh. it's a great tool I mean I will it makes it like, light-hearted and and mm. so much more inviting than a serious conversation it's sort so. of like hey check out this yeah. app it asks all these questions let's sit down and play yeah um, and certainly you can skip things I will it be, takes the taboo away It does. Yeah. It's sort of a nice aid and it gives you the language. You're like, I didn't make that up. That's (laughs) part of the card. It's not me. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't do that. Um, you can skip things if they don't feel comfortable. Um, I will say that they are pretty explicit and pretty detailed. So, yeah, I love um, but that. it's a great way to learn. And if both of you are open to just sort of go through some questions, um, yeah. you know, you can do a few at a time and just make it part of a ritual when you're, you know, hanging out in the evening one night. Yeah. yeah. What about though, about the more difficult things like maybe libido or uh, being able to stay hard or mm-hmm. a woman being able to achieve orgasm? What about those harder topics? I think those things, um, they might come up during, you know, open-ended questions about mm-hmm. sexuality. And then I think, um, 
you know, some of those things are just hard to talk about no matter how you approach it. And so I think coming to the table, honestly, about that and just saying, hey, you know, there's something that is kind of hard for me to bring up, but I think it's important. Can we have a chat? And, you know, I think the most important thing is to use, um, you know, the communication skills that a lot of people are familiar with. You talk about yourself and Mm -hmm. I statements and like, here's what Mm -hmm. I'm realizing, what I need, what works for me. And it helps when we also uh, state our needs in positive terms versus negative terms. And that's a Gottman um, Mm. uh, exercise as well. And so what that means is rather than saying what you don't want or don't like or what doesn't work for you, you talk about what does. And so it's more inviting and it ends up being easier for the person who's listening to hear that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, those are really... uh, great examples but it's also just such a tough like how uh, I'm just trying to think of my own personal experiences where I've come up against something like that where how do you I'm trying to think of the words to use in a situation where I don't feel necessarily um sexually energized I guess we can call it that uh at the time I do a lot of hormone tracking. That's like my other favorite thing is, is hormones. So I can see during the month where it's going to be like, it's on and where it's Mm. not going to be on, you know, Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. just by that alone. And then if there's other external triggers, like the stress of work and all these other things that come into play. uh, So I think your advice there of just figuring out how to communicate clearly and, and authentically what you're feeling um, is really, that's, it's just, we have to open our mouths to do it. I feel like that's the thing. I guess it's just more more about dealing with the shame and the root issues that you probably have around sexuality in the first place. That's how it is for me anyway. I feel like my tendency is to be like, oh, I don't want to talk about this thing because it makes me feel somehow vulnerable. So. Yeah. Well, I think also um, like doing some reading or learning about how your body works mm-hmm. and um, you know, kind of what's normal, what to expect. And there's two sides to what's normal. Sometimes that helps us to know what's normal because it's validating. Sometimes it can be um, difficult if we fall outside of what everybody is telling us is normal. That then doesn't feel very good. But um, I will say that one of the best books, uh, this is uh, particularly for women uh, about sexuality is called Come As You Are by Emily (laughs) Nagoski. You've got it. Yeah. So um, one of the most important concepts she talks about in there is the idea of responsive desire. Um, And uh, what that basically means is that for a lot of people, and uh, we think that this is uh, kind of affecting women more than men, um, that uh, their desire is more responsive. And so what that Mm. means is that there needs to be something to respond to. So it's Mm. very context dependent. Mm. And so it's very normal to you know, kind of sit on the couch watching a show and thinking like, well, I'm not really that interested. Um, that could be really different than if you're, you know, unclothed and in bed and start touching and kind of caressing each other. And then that might sound really different to you. And so it's very normal to have more of a responsive interest in sex versus what we typically look at as more of the spontaneous interest. So just wanted to highlight that for folks who might resonate with that, that that's very mm. common and uh, a legitimate way of experiencing desire. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, uh, we have a 
we have a question from the magic mob. Deborah on Instagram says, uh, women often get uncomfortable with men masturbating if they're in a, in a relationship and, um, they're using pornography or at least that's the consensus from my friends and I, this is Deborah. Uh, it bothers me because I feel like he's choosing it over making the effort to be intimate with me. Um, I'm willing to be intimate. It seems he just doesn't want to put in the effort to be with me sometimes. And it makes me feel unwanted or unattractive. Any advice? This is a common, um, a common complaint that I hear. And, um, the issue with uh, men masturbating to porn is usually an issue for either that reason, which is I feel like he's turning towards that instead of me, mm-hmm. or it is a like value-based or moral or religious reason that, you know, I don't believe that this is a, a right thing or a good yeah. thing or what, what have you. In the case where it feels like he's turning toward that versus me, um, I wonder if that's something that, you know, couples might sit down and talk about with more openness and maybe the Gottman, you know, questions are helpful here, Mm -hmm. which is kind of learning a little bit more about, um, you know, what each person needs. And this kind of goes into some perpetual issues around flexibility and inflexibility. Mm. Um, You know, we, we kind of turn to different things for different reasons. And so, Masturbation is a great thing to do if you want to just kind of have a quick sexual release, if it's more of like a stress reduction type thing. It's certainly not fulfilling an intimacy role for anybody who's doing that. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit that criteria. I think most of us feel unfulfilled after sometimes, at least for women. If, if the reason was because you're feeling lonely or you're needing some intimacy mm-hmm. or closeness or touch, then it's going to lead to feeling unfulfilled because mm-hmm. it's not able to provide that kind of uh, role. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just to sort of get off quickly to reduce tension or go to sleep, sometimes that works just well. So mm-hmm. um, it kind of depends what you're going to it for. Mm-hmm. Masturbation and um, you know por- pornography often is just a vehicle for masturbation to kind of help the process along. Um, it's a great way for a lot of couples to manage a discrepancy between them. So if one person is like, well, I need to have like three or four orgasms a week. And the other person's like, well, I'm good with, you know, once every couple of weeks getting together mm-hmm. and having sex, then masturbation is a great way to, you know, kind of bridge the gap for the person who has mm-hmm. the need for more of that. Um, I think, you know, what I would encourage is having an open conversation about how that feels. And, um, you know, the question is, is it that he actually is turning toward that and not you? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that you're not having, you know, sexual contact together or are you wanting more sexual contact? I would invite, you know, kind of exploring more about what that issue is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would flip it too, just so in case anyone listening, um, because I don't know, I, t- I guess I tend to find myself slightly on the other end of the spectrum sometimes. Sometimes I found myself on this end of it too. But where I feel like a lot of my upbringing, you know, was uh, around sexuality was either shame-based or it was based around, you know, what pornography tells us is what sex is supposed to look like. So then it becomes, for especially for the female, it's about putting on this show. Mm-hmm. Not about your real pleasure, any, any intimacy at all. And that becomes a, a job, you know, that becomes right. some serious it kind of work. can breed selfishness too. And then that yeah. right. becomes, yeah. 
from on the male's part in in this it can breed selfishness and we know that that's coming yeah yeah so for me it would be another question too about how to build intimacy instead of um, putting on the show and how to break down the walls that I'd built around, you know, shame, shame walls around sexuality and um, creating this story around sexuality that I, I think the best thing would be to go to a therapist. That's just what we we promote on (laughs) the show all day long. (laughs) Certainly seeing a sex therapist is a great idea. That'd be a Um, great start. I think, you know, there's, there's lots of books that folks can read about, you know, sexual expectations and, Mm -hmm. and just getting some of the education around sex that many of us didn't get when we were younger. Um, because, you know, porn is used for entertainment and for arousal. It's not meant to be educational. And so if we're trying to mirror what we're seeing in those videos, um, it's often steering us in a direction that ends up being problematic because it was never meant or designed to be that way. And it's not necessarily realistic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes doing some of the reading and and learning about, you know, your body, your partner's body and sitting down and having some open-ended conversations. Um, I think, you know, when you have those conversations, one of the most important things, and this is where doing some of the work is, is trying not to um, insert yourself and kind of take things personally when your partner is talking about just sort of how their body works or what works for them, because, you know, at its root, that's not necessarily about you. That's what you're trying to learn mm-hmm. is more about them. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to some of these issues around like masturbation, pornography, that's a negotiation between two people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it falls under a sticky area of uh, defining the difference between privacy and secrecy. And, you know, certainly masturbation is something that is often done in private, although there's, you know, ways to incorporate that into a partnered experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it can also become a secret if it's something that's not talked about and not negotiated in terms of, you know, what feels like it's honoring the relationship. And Mm -hmm. if, you know, you're doing something that you know that your partner is uncomfortable with it, you know, the best thing we have is to talk about those things more openly. And that's not always easy. You kind of answered this a, a couple questions ago, but let's see if we can dive any deeper into it. The question is, how can we bring more kink into the relationship if our partner is maybe more reserved than we are? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, Sure. <laughs> So if it's something that, so first of all, we want to make sure that we're not operating off of an assumption. So we might want to kind of go back to that communication and have an understanding of, um, you know, where those limits are, what the Mm -hmm. boundaries are, and hear that from our partner's mouth versus what we're just kind of piecing together on our own. Um, There's a cool website called Mojo Upgrade. Um, and it's something where each partner can, um, like individually kind of go through a whole series of different things that you can do sexually and click on the things that would be of interest to you or the things that you would be uh, for sure not of interest. Um, and I think it also has a space to put like maybe, um, and then it sort of takes both Uh, partner's responses and shows you where you have overlap. So sometimes that's a nice tool because it just gives you a breakdown of what's the negotiable space to work with. So that's a nice tool that you can find uh, just at mojoupgrade.com. And um, 
you know, if not, then there are different ways that we can express or experience our sexuality. And that could be through fantasy. It can be through reading um, erotic stories. It can be through, you know, visual erotica. Um, and then, you know, depending on what a partner's boundaries are, there might be some ways to incorporate it together mm-hmm. and then other ways to kind of expand upon that um, through fantasy or reading or watching something. Yeah, those are all great tips. I feel like right now my girlfriends are all in their early to mid 30s. And this is a question that floats around a lot. I mean, a lot. And it's not just necessarily adding kinkiness into the bedroom, but just wanting to figure out new ways to add life into the bedroom. So yeah, yeah, all that's great, great tips. You know, the other thing is that a lot of um, people will notice that, you know, over time they start to have more of a routine sex life and it Mm -hmm. feels, you know, kind of similar or the same each time. And that's really normal. And often we think, okay, you know, how kinky can we get here and how can we spice things up? One thing that's really interesting is that it's not just sexually that helps to create some of that, you know, newness or energy towards our partners that sometimes just in, you know, non-sexual realms of the relationship, like, um, you know, when you go out together on a date, like go do something different, you Mm. know, bring, bring newness into the relationship in other areas. And sometimes that can translate into the energy in the bedroom as well. So it doesn't all have to be, you know, we often think like we have to get really spicy in the bedroom, um, but doing different things and new things and exciting things together in other areas can sometimes translate as well. Absolutely. I think novelty is super important. Um, I actually have this weird worry that's, you know, I'm just being really honest with you guys, mm-hmm. but I have this weird like underlying worry because my husband and I, we travel for our work. And so we're always on the road together, seeing a lot of new things and a lot of new places. It's kind of how it's always been in our relationship. I'm always like, what if we had a routine life one day and it was Hmm. not enough novelty and it, you know, became boring because of that. But that's just my own insecurities that I got to figure out how to deal with. Then you would be intentional about creating those moments for yourself. Yeah. I'm sure we would. And yeah, we call it really you does. Us. Dr. It really Lauren. does all come yeah. down to intention and all and everything being yes. intentional. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's hard for men sometimes because they don't like to do anything that feels forced mm. or feels obligatory. Um, but if we can just switch those words out for just being intentional, um, like meeting the love languages and stuff like that, it's just being intentional. I think how you frame it and think about it makes all the difference. Yeah. Before we um, go to, so we always cap uh, the show with a few short questions, but before we do those, um, I've heard you speak on Dr. Susan Campbell's five stages of relationships, which I think is a really nice and neat way of organizing the pieces of a relationship to make it a bit easier to look at. Could you go over what those stages are with us? Oh my gosh, now I have to remember them all. (laughs) (laughs) So the the first stage, um, I believe, is the... um, like the limerence or honeymoon stage. A lot of people are mostly familiar with that first stage. Mm-hmm. Um, the first stage is, you know, those really uh, strong emotions where, you know, you can't stop thinking about the person. And it's sort of like you're, you know, on drugs. Like you're yeah. just very high on, you know, being in love. And um, so a lot of people are familiar with that stage because that's um, yeah. commonly portrayed in the media. Yeah. 
Disney and um, everything else too. Absolutely. And so that stage usually lasts about six months to two years. Um, and uh, it, it just comes with sort of, you know, a bit of fantasy thinking involved and kind of seeing only the good stuff in your partner mm. and ignoring some of the not so good stuff or the conflict mm. stuff. And so sometimes that can be why we um, can a few years in start to experience sort of this disillusionment when we mm. move into, I think the second one is the power struggle phase mm. where we start to um, realize that, oh, okay, we actually have some challenges and things are um, you know, not all that I thought they were. And so this is where the conflicts start to emerge more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, it becomes more of a struggle because, you know, two people kind of saying, Hey, you need to come over to my side on this issue. And mm-hmm. so that's where that stuff comes up. And I think the power struggle phase comes up a lot, especially around, um, the decision to live together. Ah. And so how do you feel about that? Is, is living together before marriage super important in your mind? I, I mean, unless there's some sort of religious reason why you wouldn't, I think it's a great idea for, um, learning more about whether that's something that is going to work for you because Mm -hmm. it's one thing to sort of, you know, if you're staying at a partner's house a lot or spending a lot of time together, it's another to merge your stuff and co-create a space. Mm. There's a lot of struggle in that. And I would say that um, for a lot of folks, you know, that's where the power struggle really emerges um, is around creating a shared space together and um, understanding the differences around uh, like living habits and day-to-day habits and sort of the way things operate. So I think that's where that comes up a lot. Um, Remind me. Power um, stability then, stage. The stability stage, I think, is where you you know start to um, gain some acceptance for those differences, and so um, you start to kind of pick your battles and learn. Sort of, here's where I have a little bit of leverage, and here's where things are just you know this is how my partner is, and I need to learn to accept that. And so it becomes a bit more stable and maybe less conflicted at that point. Cool. And then the commitment stage is number four. The commitment stage, I mean, you would think that this would come earlier and and mm. um, I'm not sure that these mm. really work sequentially. So I think that they mm. can sometimes... Yeah, I think the commitment would be before moving in. <laughs> I know, right? But actually think about that, that the moving in might be sort of the interviewing yeah. for the commitment. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And so that's why I actually think it can be really helpful because you know, you want to go through some power struggle and you want mm-hmm. to stabilize a bit before you decide to make that a longer That's term true. commitment. True. Yeah. So, it's a risk and a commitment to move in, but it's a short term risk. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, it's, you know, a little bit easier maybe than um, if you make further commitments. So yeah. um, the commitment phase is just sort of, you know, I think the point at which you decide that this is something that you're going to do for the long term and it can involve things like marriage or, um, having children together, you know, things like this. Um, it could also involve for some people, that's maybe when they move in together. Um, so it could, it could look like a couple of different things for people. Yeah. Um, and then number five, the co-creation or bliss stage. The co 
creation or bliss stage is basically, I don't know about the bliss part, because I think that's a little bit of the, <laughs> sounds the great. Disney version. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it sounds great. The co-creation is, um, and this is a little bit similar to the Gottman Sound Relationship House. It's mm-hmm. basically um, the point at which you're creating a life together and you're creating something that's meaningful together. Um, and so it's creating, the Gottmans call it creating shared meaning. And so for some people that could be in raising children and a family and finding meaning in that, that they're doing that together. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, traveling the world. It could be, you know, starting a foundation. It's doing something together that feels meaningful. Yeah. You know, what's great about this is that I typed in literally Dr. Susan Campbell, five stages of relationship and your (laughs) post, it looks like from Instagram is the first thing that popped up in images. So wow, Wow. you're doing, you're doing well in the social media realm. I will say that her model is, I think it start, it was from the seventies. So it might be a little bit of an older model. So I don't know if I can take full credit for that. And other than modernizing it. Yeah. Yeah. Reviving it well. Great. Um, okay. Well, there's a few short questions. Like Jade said, we like to ask everyone who comes on the show. So sure. first off, if you could hug your younger self right now, what would you say? Ooh, that's a good one. What would I say? I would say just trust yourself and mm. know that, you know, what, what direction life is mm. pulling you is the right one for you. Yeah. How old were you when you were hugging yourself? Um, it was probably that 16 year old. It was like, I don't know if this is what I really want to do. Do I want to, I was always worried about specializing as a a therapist because I felt like maybe that would sort of pigeonhole me and somehow create limitations in Mm. my career. Or, um, it was sort of that scarcity fear. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I would probably go back and just say, Oh my gosh, you know, just go go full steam steam ahead. Yeah. Mm. Trust yourself is such a good one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you could have the whole world read one book, which would it be? You've already given Daring, so many good ones. Mm-hmm. Daring Greatly by Brene really? Brown. Mm-hmm. You're the second guest in a row to say that book. Yeah. Is in a right? row. In wow. A row. It was crazy. Yeah. It's one of the most influential books I've ever read. Um, I read all of her books at this point, and um, that's by far my favorite. The the first two that she wrote um, are also really good, Mm -hmm. but I think that's where things really started to click and gel for me. And then the following book, Rising Strong and Braving the Wilderness, uh, such good reading. So, Did you watch her Netflix special? Oh, absolutely. I saw her. She was on book tour for uh, Braving the Wilderness and she came to Minneapolis and my husband and I went to see her and it was, we were in tears. She's just so powerful. I know. I cry every time I watch it. And I, anytime I'm feeling like I just need a reset um, where I'm like, I need to, you know, uh, get some good energy on, on what I'm watching. That's what I put on. And, um, and I cry every time, even though I've seen it a dozen times. So it's listening to her is like just a big hug. Mm -hmm. I know. I feel the same way about Ellen. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I look back on, uh, like, I don't look back because I'm not there yet, but I look at, I try to look from a perspective of, I don't know, what is it? 30 years down the line. I feel like Mm -hmm. people like Ellen or people like Brene Brown will be people we look back and go, wow, they were really changing the landscape. Yeah. What we, what we're doing here, especially in psychology and just like being able to be vulnerable. Yeah. Oh yeah. Lucky to be alive at the same time as them. 
Yes. Yeah. Cool to see it happening in real yeah. time. Absolutely. Right. If you could whisper one phrase to everyone on the planet, what would it be? You're normal. Mm. And I know that that's, that's a complicated word because yeah, like I said, sometimes, sometimes if we don't fit in a norm, we can feel sort of like we don't belong, but yeah. there's, I, I think that the, the sense of normal is, it's like the bar with which we're all human. And so mm. the idea of normal, whether that's statistically normal or just, you know, you're human and yeah. you belong and, you know, your experiences, you're not alone is yeah. basically kind of what that breaks down to. I tell myself a lot, there is no normal. Like stop yeah, trying to make everything lot. fit into a mm-hmm. box because there isn't one, you know? It's I know. That's why it's such a Which is kind of the same thing. thing. Yeah, it's essentially the yeah, same. Yeah, it's idea. sort of different ways of looking at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either way, it's normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Lauren, before we let you go, where can people find you online? I am most active on Instagram. So you can find me at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. And mm-hmm. I also have a Facebook page. Um, I currently work for a large managed care um, uh, healthcare organization here in Minneapolis. So that's why I don't really have my own webpage. So mm-hmm. Instagram is the place to find me. Yeah, your Instagram is really, it really, really, really has helped me a lot. So we're oh, so thankful you so that much. you came on. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And if you guys are listening, go give her a follow. Uh, We were talking about it earlier in the episode that your page is something Jade and I send back and forth the the post from. So (laughs) we're enjoying that. And we are so glad that you are doing work that's changing the landscape um, as well. So you'll be Mm. one of those people we can look back on, like I mentioned. So thank you so much for being a light. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. She's great. So today, what do you have for your magic trick? So I promise you that I did not, I did not, when you said Gottman method during rehearsal, like the name rang a bell. Uh And then when you said it today, um, or one of us said it, um, I still did not realize I'm reading a Gottman book. (laughs) I didn't. It was perfect. I didn't realize it, but then I looked down to my right because for my magic trick, I am reading out of eight dates yeah. by the Gottmans, John Gottman right. and Julie Schwartz Gottman. So um, I looked down at my right and I saw the word Gottman and I thought, huh. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if that's the same guy. And then <laughs> it like hit me. And so it was so, so interesting because this morning I had another magic trick planned and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to read from the got from eight dates. Yeah. So, um, so seems meant to you be. Know, what's really interesting too is that she literally just like within the last day or two has posted the cover of that book, talking about that. that book. Yeah, and that's so weird. And um, and I read we read I read this book today with my partner. So that's so so like weird. Meant to be. And what's sure. even more weird? <laughs> there's more. Yeah. <laughs> is when we rehearsed this a couple of days ago. When we got off, I kind of like teared up because I thought. And I think I may have said this to you during rehearsal. I thought, man, so many of my past relationships had I um, discussed these questions. Yes. No, h- had I discussed these questions with you mm-hmm. during rehearsal, mm. I would have felt so like almost like left out and so kind of like hopeless of like, oh yeah, you did say this. Mm-hmm. I would have felt kind of like sad and like, man, I wish I had a partner I could do this stuff with. And 
this is the first time in my life where like I'm talking about this stuff with you and rehearsing this stuff and thinking like, whoo, I'm so grateful that I have this. So I was like overwhelmed with gratitude. And then um, reading from this book today about, about the Gottman method and then interviewing with her, it just made me like last week when we interviewed with um, Jessica Evil Eye, I was like so overwhelmed with gratitude. I don't know. Maybe I'm just feeling grateful. <laughs> where, where are you at in your hormone cycle? No, but um, uh-huh. I was going to just mention to the listening audience that the way that we, you know, part of our process here on the show is we kind of swap back and forth on who writes these outlines and does mm-hmm. research because we have so many guests on. We got to really cram a lot of information. Mm-hmm. So it gets overwhelming for you know, both of us to do it for every guest. So that is why in this circumstance, I researched this guest, um, Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy. Mm-hmm. And that's why Jade was, <laughs> didn't know about, um, you know, her, her primary method, which is the Gottman method. So just to get you guys caught up. Um, but wow, that's pretty synchronistic. It's pretty cool that it ended up being something you were literally already savvy on because you're in the middle of researching it for your own. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I'd hope also just another sidebar that anyone (laughs) listening, I know you're like, can I get to my magic trick? No, that's the thing. But anyone listening that feels like, oh, I wish I had a relationship. If they felt hopeless. Yeah. If they felt hopeless. A year ago, I would have. So, but that's the thing is, is first of all, if you're feeling hopeless, we want to like hold sacred space for you here to be able to be here and not feel triggered by mm-hmm. this conversation because of the fact that by now, you know, learning and educating yourself in things like we talked about today on the show, you will have one more piece of the whole person you're creating in yourself that will attract the exact energy of the person that you really want to call into your life, who is going to be most um, healing and best match to you. So just think of that as the positive piece of all this, if you feel at all lonely or that you wish you had someone with you now to be able to practice these tools. With. Yeah. yeah. There is hope. Yes. Always. We promise. Um, so what I wanted to read from eight dates. Um, so the third date you talk about, um, it's called agree to disagree. And you just talk about conflicts and um, you kind of go through your solvable problems and your perpetual problems, which we talked about with um, with our guests today. But I really like the way they end the chapter because um, they, they talk about a process of how to repair mm-hmm. when regrettable incidents happen. And I, I, again, I hadn't been in a relationship where I could do this type of repair work and just sit calmly and talk through conflict. Literally have never been in a relationship where I've talked through conflict ever. And um, I've talked about how in my last plant medicine ceremony, the medicine said, you won't be back for a while. Love is going to be your new medicine. Mm -hmm. And there were so many ceremonies where I felt a rewiring in my brain, physically Mm -hmm. felt it. I was on the medicine, but I felt it. And then, (laughs) um, and then just last week while working through conflict with my partner, we did these four steps. So the first one is each person takes a turn to talk about what they were feeling during the fight. Um, the second one is, so you take turns, you let the okay. other person speak. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is um, each person talks about how they saw the situation and their perspective about what actually happened. So their, their story. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't interrupt, you just validate by listening. 
Um, it doesn't mean you agree. It just means um, you're, you're giving them that safe space, right? Yeah. Um, the third one is, um, and, and also like language in that would be kind of like, um, instead of saying what, instead of like telling your partner what they did or didn't do, you're more saying, I heard you saying, you know, like, like what you, it's, it's your right. story. So you're not, you're not, you're not accusing them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the third one is triggers. So, um, you can just say, um, uh, it's like in, you know, they're old, old wounds that came up for you. Um, you can bring up a time when you felt judged or excluded or humiliated. Um, and it helps you connect your feelings to this incident. Yes. I do that a lot. I say this triggers a feeling in me that relates back to when Mm -hmm. my, you know, dad didn't choose me over. You're realizing that you're repeating a story in a way. Yeah. Right. So step four is you accept responsibility. So you, you own up to your part. It doesn't mean that you caused the issue or that you're taking all the blame. Um, but you just own up to your part. Mm. Um, what can you own up to and how you contributed in some way? Um, you're trying to avoid blame here. Um, and, uh, you're trying to avoid blaming the other person. You're right. right. Okay. You're just accepting your responsibility. Okay. Um, and, and then like in that you both discuss how you can do things differently, Mm -hmm. um, in the future, but, Mm. um, they, so me and my partner did that with a conflict that we had had the previous week and while maintaining eye contact and, and having touch. And I felt it was so crazy because, um, one of the things I realized is that, or that I was telling him is that I didn't feel valued. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't feel like what I say has value and, um, I felt unappreciated. And when I was saying that, as I was saying it, I realized, Oh, I, I don't, I don't feel like what I say has value. Mm-hmm. I don't feel, um, I don't appreciate myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was an awakening for me in a way that ceremonies have been. And as I was just like talking through conflict, again, it was mind blowing to me. That you were oh, able to do that. Yes. I've never experienced it. So, so um, as all that was happening and having this conversation, I really did feel a pattern change in my brain. Mm-hmm. Like I felt it just like I had like been on this medicine. This is possible. That's a new opening for you. This is possible. Yes. Because when you experience things like that, patterns change. Mm-hmm. And I, it like hit me like, oh, the plant medicine told me that this was going to happen this year. Yeah. Like this was going to be my new ceremony was love. And so it was so, such a rewarding moment, such a affirming moment. Yeah. Yeah. And also just like, oh, wow, there are other ways to rewire your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why it was so mind blowing to me that like I was talking through conflict. I just, I've always been afraid as soon as conflict arises, whoop, like get out of their way or get busy, like stay right. away. It's something bad's going to happen. Um, you know, pretty much my whole life, but, um, I was going to quickly read through a couple is super fast. A couple of things that they also say about conflict just for tips. So it says, okay. don't make your partner the bad guy. There is no winner in a healthy conflict. I think that's mm. so important. There is no winner in a healthy conflict. There is only understanding and resolution or acceptance. Yes, that's huge. Um, so in love, everyone wins. Yes. So communicate a fundamental acceptance of your partner's personality, regardless of how you're different. Don't avoid conflict. This is big. Avoiding conflict breeds emotional distance. Mm-hmm. Don't criticize or judge your partner. 
or believe that their viewpoint is wrong and yours is right. Both of your perspectives are valid. When regrettable incidents happen, use the four steps that I just listed to process and repair your fight. And then recognize when a problem is solvable and when it's not. Not all conflict can or needs to be resolved. Mm. Yeah. And just to give you a general idea of how this book goes, at the end of this chapter, um, something they have you do at the end of every chapter, there's a vow that you say to your partner while maintaining eye contact and touch. Mm -hmm. This vow for the end of conflict was, I commit to accepting you completely and embracing our differences. When we have conflict, I'll seek to understand your feelings and point of view about the issue and we'll manage our conflict as skillfully as possible. When Mm -hmm. regrettable incidents happen, I'll seek to repair the damage through the process we have discussed. So that's that's just a general idea of how Gottman method works. Right. And that's just the third date. There's eight of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's really, really beautiful stuff. I love it. I love it. I love it. Imagine doing that with a partner. It brings a tear to my eye of joy that we are literally (laughs) living out the transformation that's happening in our own lives. Mm, Like you just expressed through sharing that tool with us. I just can't imagine anything safer. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you getting good at it and he, you know, your your relationship getting good at Mm -hmm. it. It is the safest that's, you know, it could be, but I love that we're doing this in real time with the folks that are listening. So I'm just glad, uh, you're in it with us together, guys, whoever's listening. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Well, my magic trick is something that comes from a previous guest of ours, Sahara Rose. And um, it's just a post that I kind of took some of the info from. So in shamanic cultures, the medicine person would ask some simple questions that would guide them on healing someone. So as I ask these questions, see which of them stirs you most. When did you stop dancing? When did you stop singing? When did you stop being enchanted by stories? When did you stop being comforted by the sweet territory of silence? So which of those questions calls to you right now? That's the question you need to answer. And that would be, you know, asking yourself, what did, what do you need most? Dance, song, story, or silence? And whichever it is, my magic trick is pretty simple. It's just to invite you to find a way to bring more of that into your life right now. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember seeing that, um, I like the first one the most. When did you stop dancing? Because dancing just makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. If you ever stopped dancing, then I know something was wrong. Oh lord, Terribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the question I perpetually ask you. <laughs> I sing. You know, it's weird. Is that I, 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 um, I dance from time to time, like in my house, and you know, but more consciously, like because I know I need to get some movement in. So then I just mm-hmm. do it. Um, and I actually love dancing. I grew up dancing a lot and uh, I go, go dance for a living for a long time. I mean, like I've done a lot on the dance floor, you know, <laughs> but um, funny enough, I sing in my house whenever I'm happiest. I know this. I don't go singing hmm. out in public, but like with my cats, they, I'm always singing to them and making up songs. To them. I sing when I need to like stop feeling anxious. I'll sing a peaceful song and it oh, really, really helps me. 
never tried that for anxiety. Yeah, I sing a calming song because you're like, it's, I think it's hard to think about what you're anxious about while you're singing. Yeah, because you got to remember the words and the tone and the texture mm-hmm. and everything you're doing. Yeah. yeah. So those are just some questions to ask yourself today. All right, fam. Before we sign off, we want to remind you again of the little giveaway we have going on for our Magic Mob. We'll be picking a couple winners each month to get a $100 Amazon gift card, you guys. Basically, all you have to do is leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. You can do it right now while you're listening to the show, and we will love you to death for doing that. You have no idea how much that means to us. And once you've written your review, just snapshot it and then send us a DM on Instagram to at the magic hour. You know, we spell magic M A J I C. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you guys right now, very few people have actually gone through and done this. So you have an incredible chance. Yeah, We've had a lot of reviews, but very few people have posted on Instagram so that we know who they are. Like they don't want free money apparently, (laughs) but we still appreciate every review. No, I mean, definitely appreciate all the reviews that have come in, but I want to give you guys this damn money. (laughs) Burning a hole in my pocket. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) All right, Magic Robbers. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking this journey with us. If this episode held some magic for you, please share it with your friends and family. This would mean so much to us. And don't forget to join us on our Instagram page at the magic hour and let us know what your favorite episodes have been so far. We appreciate all your feedback and want to know what's lighting you up. Yes, and we release a new episode every Monday so you can catch us again next week or go listen to some of our past episodes in our podcast library now. We'll meet you there. Until then, be a light. Thank you to our guests today and to at Rayton Royal for our intro jam and to John Aaron Garza from Real In Motion Productions for producing the show. Stay magical, friends. Quick disclaimer. We are not medical professionals, so following any of our protocols or advice should be done at your own risk, people. And please remember to always, always do your own research. Tap into that extraordinary growth mindset we all have access to within ourselves and seek out your own answers. Come on, guys, you know, you know the deal. And by the way, if you are a medical professional or an expert in any topic we cover and you feel we are not giving accurate information about it, please find somewhere to contact us. Contact us via social or email us at our website and let us know. A major goal of ours in doing this podcast is to bring value to people's lives by sharing helpful insights and info. So we welcome being corrected at any time and we'll be happy to share any of our fuck ups with our listeners so as to get us all back on track to discovering our happiest, healthiest selves.